perspective on the world. Um, has some explanations, but very incomplete explanations for each of, uh, for things like um, our consciousness. Why do we have consciousness? Why do we experience beauty the way we experience beauty? Why do we experience suffering the way we experience suffering? Why do we long for justice and seem to be incapable of achieving it? Science without God view of the world um, doesn't really have great explanations for this. Um, and Christianity does, at least with respect to the question, what do those things mean? What is their significance um, to them? So a year ago uh, at this time, I, I stood up here and said, I'm planning to write two follow-ups to True Paradox. One, a book on beauty. Uh, thanks, Trevor. <laughs> I have one fan, um, uh, or a partial fan, maybe. Um, um, two follow-ups to True Paradox, one on beauty and one on justice. Um, this year, I'm thinking that it, it will probably end up being one. It's possible I'll end up writing the second one, but uh, the first one is definitely going to be a book about beauty. Um, and I'm going to explore a number of different topics. And what I want to uh, talk about today is the topic that may, may make the book on uh, justice unnecessary or may steal a lot of its thunder. And that is the relationship between beauty and justice, um, whether, um, whether true justice is beautiful, uh, whether there's a connection between um, beauty and justice, and what, what might that connection um, look like. I should say, as, as what I've said already uh, may make clear, this is very preliminary and, um, and very speculative. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm throwing out some ideas, and so... Uh, I'm thinking of throwing them out as, as in the sense of uh, inviting you to consider them. Um, after our conversation, we may mean throw out in the sense of get rid of um, if, if some of, the, uh, if some of the, the ideas don't make sense. But uh, I'll be very interested to hear your, um, your reactions. And I think there will be opportunity for you to, to jump in as I, as I go through. Uh, if not, if I start talking fast and using lots of words, uh, I will try uh, to do something that I don't usually do in these Vokari uh, sessions, and that is leave time for questions, or leave real time uh, for questions. I think I can do this in the, um, in the time that we have and, and really have us finish at 10.45. So what I'd like to do is three things to, um, to think through this theme of, of beauty and justice. Um, one is just to talk for uh, a few minutes about what evolutionary psychology says about beauty and justice, what explanations evolutionary psychologists have developed for, for beauty and um, for justice, and to be thinking in the back of our minds about the question whether there's a connection between the two. Does the evolutionary psychology suggest there's a connection between the two? And to, to foreshadow uh, what I would conclude so far, um, my answer would be no, or seems to be no, other than that it's the same general set of evolutionary pressures that evolutionary psychologists think 
are, um, are brought to bear, but the, the explanations for beauty and justice are, are relatively different. Second thing I want to do is to just talk about some similarities between uh, beauty and justice, and these will be kind of impressionistic. Um, I'm not sure if there's a causal significance to them, but just some intriguing similarities between beauty and justice. And then finally, I want to turn to a Christian perspective. What does the Bible seem to suggest? Um, about beauty and justice. So the evolutionary science, some similarities, and then a distinctively Christian perspective um, on these issues. So starting with evolutionary psychology, with respect, well, uh, the, the general strategy of evolutionary psychologists uh, is, particularly in these areas, particularly in the area of beauty, is to identify a universal characteristic, a universal response, try to pinpoint uh, a way that people around the world respond, and then to project back to the ancient savanna and to develop a theory as to um, why we would have this universal uh, kind of, of response. So it's, it's a reverse engineering um, process, which makes me a bit nervous. Um, uh, there is a, there's a fairly significant just-so quality to it. You imagine what life would have been like in the Pleistocene, Pleistocene period, which is uh, the period that um, the evolutionary psychologists think about, and... Um, and uh, you connect that to some universal tendency and you come up uh, with a theory. With respect to beauty, the evolutionary psychology literature tends to distinguish among three types of beauty or, or three kinds of beauty that we respond to. Um, the first type of beauty is beauty in landscape, um, the, the way we respond to a beautiful landscape and why we respond to the beautiful landscapes uh, or to the particular landscapes that we do. And in True Paradox, um, I, I, I give a personal anecdote about this, which I would love to repeat. I'd love to go through, but it'd take 10 minutes um, because it, it um, uh, is kind of, a, for me, a fun. It brings back memories of trying to find myself in, in, in college and going out west and hitchhiking in um, in California, but the short of the of this particular experience is I wound up on the side of the road in the Redwood region of, of California. I was trying to hitchhike. My friends had gone home uh, to the East Coast to actually get jobs for the summer, and I got stuck um, in the middle of nowhere in the Redwood region, ended up sleeping on the side of the road, woke up in my sleeping bag soaking wet from the dew at about 4.30 in the morning, Feeling miserable, uh, uh, feeling sorry for myself. I, uh, uh, sad to say, still have my journals from this trip, and the journals say things like, um, "Nietzsche was right. There's no hope. The world is uh, the world is uh, the world is a disaster." Uh, so I pick up my sleeping bag because there's nothing else to do. I put it in my backpack. I start walking. I start. I walk around a. Um, a bend, and it turns out that the bend is overlooking uh, part of the redwood forest. There are clouds nestled in the, in the redwood trees. The sun is just coming up. It's glowing. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, and it is one of four or five 
experiences like that that I, I've had, and, and hopefully all of y'all or most of y'all have had at least a few like that where you just feel transformed and you feel like you're momentarily in touch with the way the universe is, is meant to be. Um, so the evolutionary psychology, and this is a, an unfair setup for the evolutionary psychology, which might be right, but the evolutionary psychology account for why we respond to landscapes the way we do is that in the ancient savanna with ancient human beings, um, we, we respond to landscapes that would have been likely to have food for them. Um, so that the landscapes that we're drawn to are landscapes that are more rather than less likely to have a food. And there's a whole theory about what this does. It may be right, um, but it really has a just-so kind of quality, and it certainly doesn't, uh, doesn't explain um, that sense of transcendence um, that, that you have in the, in the presence of beauty. But that's the, the, the reigning explanation for why we respond to, to beauty, and, and the theory says we respond to landscapes with a lot of trees, with some water, with a mixture of forest and open area, um, and there are all kinds of questions one could, could raise about that, but that's, that's where the theory is. Um, the second type of beauty that the literature talks about is, is human beauty, particularly beauty in people's faces. Um, mine's not an example of this, but, um, uh, and in people's bodies and uh, the, the current evolutionary psychology thinking about this tends to suggest that we respond to, um, to, to beauty that indicates fitness or health. So symmetrical features, um, features that suggest we're, we're not likely to be subject to parasites and other potentially uh, problematic things from a reproductive um, perspective. So that's the, uh, at least a piece of the evolutionary psychology on beauty. Um, the third and the last, uh, last of the major categories of beauty that the literature talks about is beauty in art. Why do we respond to beauty in art the way we do? One of the main theories there is that, um, that, we, te that we respond to, uh, our response to art helps produce social cohesion. Um, that when we respond to a beautiful painting or a beautiful piece of music, it draws us together and it was useful in the ancient savannah as a way uh, to, to reinforce community is essentially the argument. Now, even evolutionary psychologists acknowledge that this is a pretty thin explanation and that it doesn't, um, it doesn't apply to many, many types of, of, of art. Um, one other thing I'll say about these three types of beauty is that the, um, the explanations of art and of landscape tend to focus on, um, uh, on fitness generally uh, in the process of natural selection, whereas the explanation of beauty in faces tends to focus on sexual um, sexual selection, which is uh, is a little different in um, in evolutionary theory than natural selection um, generally. So natural selection is 
traits that, um, that survived, usually because they are adaptive in a general sense. So, uh, sexual selection focuses on uh, a desire to attract mates and not so much um, general um, uh, fitness uh, in the way that, that natural selection generally talks about. So those are, I'm not going to, to try to parse those too much. I'm just kind of throwing those out as some of the ideas. As I said, there's a, there's a just say, uh, this, a just so quality to a lot of this. Some of it is pretty interesting because there do seem to be universal tendencies. Um, it is, it's pretty, um, preliminary um, in my view, but it may be that through time there will be a, a compelling uh, explanation um, for some of these things. With respect to, uh, to justice, um, the evolutionary psychology tends to focus on morality and pulls justice into that. A lot of the evolutionary psychology on um, on morality and what, what I'll, I'll assimilate to justice, thinks of it in terms of modules, different, um, different uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the word uh, I'm looking for is, but different foundational motivations, I would guess, I guess you would say, is that um, the, uh, the current theory suggests that there are a variety of different things we respond to, and our sense of morality uh, uh, emerges from the interaction among these different modules or things that we respond to, or, or they're sometimes called tastes. Um, but that's a little bit misleading of a term. Um, the best known exemplar of this now is work by uh, a guy named Jonathan Haidt, uh, who is at NYU. I see some folks nodding your head, so some of you know his work. I think it's very interesting. He, did, he just did a Veritas Forum event with Tim Keller, which uh, I have on my screen. I haven't watched it yet. Um, but but hate argues that there are five different morality modules, and then he ends up adding a um, a fifth one. Um, his particular concern is why um, why Republicans and Democrats differ in their sense of of um, morality. But it is an argument that our morality emerges from these uh, modules. And the book that this comes out of is a book called The Righteous Mind. Um, very, very interesting book that, um, that came out a few years ago. So the five main modules to which he adds a sixth are the first one is care and harm. So, so care is the positive um, impulse. Harm is, is an undermining of that positive impulse. The second is fairness and cheating. Um, so we have modules for, for care and for detecting the doing of harm and, to, and for reacting negatively to doing harm. Um, a second one is fairness and cheating. Third one is loyalty and betrayal um, is another moral impulse or moral taste or moral mo module. Um, the fourth is authority and subversion as its negative form. The fifth is sanctity or purity, and uh, its negative form is degradation. And then he added a six, apparently because of pushback he got from Republicans, is what he says in the book. Um, and the, the six, I could, I'm tempted to ask you to guess what it is. Uh, anybody want to guess? 
Republican, you know, this is, I mean, it's hard to know what a Republican is now, so, uh, so this isn't so easy, but it's, uh, it's liberty. Liberty or oppression is, um, is the one he added, and he has a, uh, an evolutionary theory about how these might have arisen, um, and he develops it into a political theory of the difference between Democrats and Republicans. And his argument is that Democrats tend to emphasize the first two of these modules or tastes or foundations, care and fairness, whereas interestingly he concludes that Republicans or conservatives tend to use all of the modules, which I think is, is, is kind of debatable, but um, his idea that we have um, that we have these different impulses or, or tastes or modules and that they're interacting as we're working through moral issues, I think is very interesting. I think it might be right. I mean, it, it too has a little bit of a just-so quality to it. I mean, he's wrestled, uh, he, he's done a huge amount of survey work and he comes up with these from his survey work. So he starts with a bunch of possibilities and he narrows them down and he adds some others and um, there's no, I don't think there's o no, there isn't any ultimate magic to this list um, and you, you could lump some of them together, you could probably split some of them up, but the idea is that we have these different inclinations that are interacting, I, which I think is pretty interesting, and I think on some level it's, it's probably right. Um, so the question this, this leads me to is, is there any relationship between the theories of beauty and the theories of justice? And my initial answer is no, or at least I don't see it. And I'll give you a small, a small data point on it. Um, I did a, a little Veritas forum at Penn last week with the neuroscientist talking about precisely these issues. Um, and he spent the whole time talking about beauty. He did not say a word about justice, um, even when there were questions about um, justice. So uh, my first pass at this is, um, is, leads me to reach the conclusion that there's no, there isn't an obvious connection other than the general focus on natural selection and, and sexual selection as, as the ultimate um, drivers. I'd be interested if, if y'all see any connections among them, um, I'd be interested in, in hearing them. Um, but, um, but I will uh, start, or I'll, or I'll kind of conclude the first part with that conclusion and use that to lead into the second part, um, which is to talk about three similarities, as I see it, between beauty and justice. So the evolutionary psychology, at least as of right now, doesn't seem to suggest that there's any connection between beauty and justice, or they, they, they seem, they're explained in very, very different ways um, on the one hand, but on the other hand, there are, to me, some interesting similarities um, between them, and I don't want to make any strong claims about it. I don't know if they're causal similarities, although I, I suspect ultimately they are. Um, and here's what the three similarities that occur to me are. One is that there is a great deal of, of variation and disagreement in our perceptions in both areas. But there also seems to be some universal objective foundation in each context. So there's this interesting tension between uh, the extent to which we disagree among ourselves, the extent to which cultures disagree with each other, 
But um, the likelihood, and I don't want to make a strong claim here, this may be wrong, but it seems as though there is an objective foundation in each of these areas. And um, a couple of illustrations of that, not proof at all, I'm going uh, I'm to invoke the, the uh, not the psychological, but philosophical literature, and so a conclusion of the philosophical literature, some of us might, might conclude that must mean it's wrong, um, but uh, the, the philosophical literature on beauty, uh, at least the main thread of it, which is a thread that goes from Kant to a, a book by a woman who I think is also at NYU, she's emeritus at, uh, at NYU, a, a woman named Mary Mothersill, um, and this, this main strand of aesthetic theory from a philosophical um, perspective reaches an interesting, not completely coherent, but interesting conclusion, and that is that we cannot define the criteria for beauty. Um, you can't come up with a list of, um, of what it makes to make something beautiful, a list that if you, if you satisfy this five set of five things or six things or whatever, um, you, will, you will produce something that is beautiful. We can't come up with a list of descriptions that something is beautiful. On the one hand, argues Mother Sill, um, developing ideas from Kant. But on the other hand, we can reach objective judgments about beauty, objective judgments as to whether something is beautiful um, or not. I throw that out as, as just something interesting and suggestive, that there seems to be uh, a very serious line of argument uh, that we, we can't identify the criteria for beauty or we can't isolate them, and yet, yet there is something objective um, about beauty you see something a little bit similar in the justice um, context, uh, context. So um, in the justice context, we have different variables interacting. So hates five or six, depending on how you define it. Um, uh, modules of justice are variables that interact. Yet many of the people in this literature believe that there is an objective foundation for, um, for, for justice and for um, morality. And one of the things that pushes them to that is the recognition that if there's not an objective uh, basis for morality, you really can't condemn things like the Holocaust or racism. It's very difficult um, to uh, to um, to demonstrate a basis for reaching decisive conclusions about what is is just and, and is unjust. Now, I'm very intrigued in this context with the way Steven Pinker um, um, pivots at this point. So Steven Pinker is a psychologist and linguist. At Harvard, I talk about him a fair amount in, in True Paradox. Very, very interesting atheist, um, thoughtful um, atheist. He wrote a, a widely downloaded article 10 years ago in the New York Times Magazine. This is it. It's, it's called The Moral Instinct, where he's drawing on Jonathan Haidt's work about morality and making some arguments about our instinct for morality. Um, and he wrestles with this question of, um, is there any objective foundation for all of this, or is it all up for grabs? And then he does what Pinker 
not unfrequently does, and he makes a pivot um, based on nothing in particular. He says there seems to be an objective foundation for all of this. And, and I'll read one sentence from uh, the article. He says and he, he analogizes morality to mathematics, and he says perhaps we are born with a rudimentary moral sense, and as soon as we build on it with moral reasoning, the nature of moral reality forces us to some conclusions but not others, which for me is really interestingly analogous to uh, what I was saying earlier about beauty, the idea that we, we can't identify the criteria or we can't list the criteria, but there seems to be a, an objective substructure to it. So that's the first uh, similarity I want to throw out. Second similarity I want to throw out is with both beauty and justice, and this is where I bring in our fallenness, um, the second and third uh, similarities will both bring in our fallenness, there seems to be a, an inevitable temptation to shortcut the process. Um, so to, to cheat or to shortcut the process from where we are to the experience of beauty or, or justice. And so with, with beauty, anybody, anybody think of a, a way that you might try to shortcut the, uh, the process to that experience I had in the Redwood region? Uh, those of us of a certain age, uh, it would come immediately to mind, and the most obvious way to do it is drugs, um, is uh, psychologi uh, 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 psychedelic drugs. Um, I said, those of us of a certain age, you know, uh, we weren't, we, we didn't, there were no drugs on our trip out west, in case you were worrying. Um, but it is, it is a way to short circuit the process or to speed up the process to an experience of beauty. And, and an interesting example of this for me is um, a, a poet that I'm fond of uh, that's not very well known unless you're a real poetry nerd. It's a guy named Charles Wright. And uh, he, he was the poet laureate, not, not the current one, but the last one. Um, and he wrote once that he once wrote a poem while he was doing drugs, and I forget what drug, it, it was some kind of psychologic, psychedelic drug, and he said he wrote the poem more quickly than he'd ever written um, any poem in his life, and when he uh, was no longer on the, the drugs and went back to it, he did not have to change a thing, um, and it terrified him. And so he never, he never did drugs again, is at least the way, um, the way he puts it. But there's this temptation to shortcut. Um, it seems to me that there's also a temptation to shortcut with justice, to, um, to try to produce a just um, society or something that looks like justice or something that's an impersonation of justice, but to produce it in a, a fraudulent or problematic way. And the two examples that occur immediately to me, one is totalitarianism, totalitarianism the early 20th century totalitarianism. Totalitarianism, uh, at least in the Italian form, 
there was something beautiful about it. I mean, it, it's scary and it's evil, but it was pure in a way that people were drawn to. It seemed to produce a just society very, um, very quickly to people who bought in to, to totalitarianism. Um, a version of that that I think we're seeing right now um, is what's going on in the Philippines right now with Duterte, who is basically shooting people who are suspected of um, drugs, uh, being involved in drugs or other, other criminal behavior. It strikes me that, that this too, and I mean, we could multiply the examples. I think eugenics has a little bit of this quality too, um, is a temptation to short circuit this, the process. Um, to beauty. And again, I mean to justice. And again, I, I'm not sure if there's a causal connection uh, uh, between what's going on with beauty and what's going on with justice, but I think it's striking that we have that same um, kind of temptation. The final, um, the final similarity that I'm very struck by, which also uh, arises from our fallenness, and this is something I talked about last year uh, when we had one of these vocare um, meetings together, and that is the relationship between ugliness or uh, injustice and uh, beauty and justice, that ugliness or injustice in a weird way sometimes seems to make the experience of beauty more vivid um, than it would be in the absence of, um, of ugliness or injustice. And in the beauty context, um, example, one example occurred to me, uh, had occurred to me, and, and one, one of y'all raised last year. I, last year I was talking about beauty and suffering, um, and so this is overlapping a little bit with what, what I, was, I talked about last year. Um, one example of this for me personally is um, a friend of mine uh, who I had hoped to write the little book True Paradox with, who's a criminal justice scholar named Bill Stuntz, uh, but who died of cancer. When he was dying of cancer, he, when he was in the, um, in the hospital, I think it, it was, he was in Mass General for a while, and I think one of the other Boston um, hospitals, he had a room that, um, that overlooked the Charles River. Uh, and he wrote a blog post about how he had never as fully experienced the beauty of the river um, as when he was in this hospital uh, having treatment for, um, for his cancer. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that everybody who suffers has a greater sense of beauty. That's not true at all. And sometimes, um, sometimes when people are suffering, there's, there's no sense of beauty at all. And, and it seems to me there's a point where suffering makes beauty impossible. I um, mean, the example, obvious example is torture. Um, I believe makes makes beauty impossible, uh, but there seems to be um, a connection between suffering and beauty, and it sometimes can make um, beauty more uh, more beautiful. An example that one of y'all suggested last year is um, is the Viktor Frankl book *Man's Search for for Meaning*. There's a really beautiful passage about imagining seeing his wife um, and the beauty of his wife in the midst of, of, of this suffering. There's also a beauty, beautiful passage about seeing what looks like a cross on a, um, on a building. Another example of this, this odd connection between um, suffering and, and, um, and beauty. 
It seems to me that it's similar with justice, that we have a similar experience. And a couple of examples of this that come to mind for me, um, one is uh, uh, the Rodney King uh, incident about 20 years ago. Rodney King, as most people probably remember, um, was beaten by the police uh, outside of Los Angeles. And after that happened, uh, he was interviewed and he said, why can't we just all get along? And it produced a visceral response in many people, which I think is the same kind of response, the vision of justice in the presence of injustice. There may be some examples of that in some of the recent problems we've had, Ferguson and, a and afterwards, but I can't think of, I mean, they, they've been more vexed. There's been less, I, I can't uh, think of a particular moment. I mean, the closest thing that comes to it for me is um, the guy that was killed in Minnesota and the, the tape recording of his wife. Um, um, but, but that didn't produce the catharsis. That produced more of the, the deepening of the sense of injustice and, and, um, and pain. But there, there does seem to be a relationship um, between injustice and our longing for or our rejoicing at justice. Another example of that in my lifetime um, is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When he came from communist Russia to the United States, um, he was just in awe of how just the American society is. Now, the more that he got into this society, uh, the more questions he had about it. He ended up being very critical um, of America. But his experience of injustice seemed to, it's almost like it gave him a, a, an additional sense of what justice is like and how, um, how important it is. So what does Christianity have to say about um, all of this? And I, I haven't defined justice yet. I also haven't defined beauty, but um, that's a, a good place to start in, in the final piece of my discussion. Uh, the theologian uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, mid-20th century theologian, defined justice as a trade-off between equality and freedom. And I think it's a, it's a very good start to a definition. Um, he argued that uh, human justice in a fallen world uh, involves the effort to, to balance equality and freedom. If you, if you increase equality, you're inevitably reducing freedom. If you uh, increase freedom, you inev inevitably create the conditions for inequality. Um, he argued that true justice would involve love. Um, that biblical justice uh, is characterized by love, but because we're fallen, because we're sinful, we're incapable of achieving that. And so he argued that for us, justice is a trade-off of equality um, and freedom. I would revise that slightly. I really find it helpful, and it's interesting how it maps on to almost any Western contemporary discussion of justice. Um, you can fit into that, um, into that framework. I would add authority um, to, um, to uh, his equality and freedom, and I would argue that proper justice, um, biblically conceived, um, is a, a balancing of equality, freedom, and authority, and that the objective is relationship or proper in a proper community, I think you would say. So my vision, at least my initial vision of justice, um, is that it is a balancing of equality, freedom, and authority 
with the overall objective of, um, of developing vibrant community, um, uh, community characterized by proper relationships. Now, where do we see this pictured, biblically speaking? I think the place we see it pictured most obviously is in the Trinity um, and in the idea that um, Jesus is subordinate to the Father in his human form. He is the Son, not the Father. The Father is the Father, not the Son. Um, uh, so there is authority, um, and yet they are somehow equal, altogether um, equal. And I think you can work through what I've just said in terms of the Trinity Footnote on this, um, I haven't seen the movie The Shack, um, but I, uh, I read the, the book a few years ago, probably 10 years ago, in a father-son book club with some folks from my church, and all of us, or most of us in the book club were ragging on the book um, and saying that it's theologically problematic, but our pastor, um, who was also in the book club, kind of at the end of this discussion said, yeah, there's some theological difficulties, but one thing he said it really beautifully conveys is the love within the Trinity, um, the way that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit interact in a way that's, that's characterized um, by love. It seems to me that that is, uh, is the foundation for justice or a way of thinking about justice. I also think it's a way of thinking about beauty and the things that we, that we find beautiful. I talk about this a little bit in True Paradox. Um, what do we find beautiful? Well, I think often what we find beautiful um, involves apparently paradoxical qualities, things that ideas that seem to be in tension with each other and yet are both true. Um, and in the painting context, what Hans Hoffman, the, the painter, called the pu push-pull effect, um, where you're, you're, you're going in two different directions, you're moving forward and moving backwards. Um, so there is, there's a tension, but a resolution of that tension and an overall harmony. Um, it seems to me that that looks like the Trinity uh, as well. And, and it, this is the most speculative thing, I say, in, um, in True Paradox. Um, I think it's right. I'm, I'm not sure if it is right or if it, at least it's a useful way of thinking about beautiful injustice. There are a couple of interesting implications. One is... Um, as, uh, it, what is that it suggests or it explains the nature of the objective basis for beauty and for, for justice. Um, uh, uh, as Christians, we believe there is an objective basis for beauty and justice. Um, the Trinity is a way of thinking about how that, um, how that plays out, it seems to me. It also suggests um, that, uh, or it, it adds a new level of richness to the suggestion that there's a relationship between suffering and, um, and beauty, um, and, uh, evil and, um, and justice. Um, and, and the, the place in the Bible that I find myself going back over and over to as I think about this is the portrayal of, of Jesus in Revelation. Um, where we're shown Jesus in heaven, in Revelation, not as spotless and as unaffected by his life as a man, but as the lamb who was slain. 
I mean, one of the really, or a really interesting thing about that passage, which is in, um, in Revelation 5, is if you read to the end of the passage, it's where um, the elders and, um, and the church are singing a new song. And it goes on to talk about the angels. The angels aren't singing the song. They are saying the song. They're saying uh, it's very, very clearly um, uh, emphasized that the angels say they don't sing. And I'm not sure if this is right or not, um, but at least some theologians think that the reason that the angels aren't singing, the reason that they are saying is because they haven't experienced fallenness. Um, and having experienced fallenness is somehow essential to the new song uh, that we will sing in heaven when we are with Christ face to face and permanently. And I think I'll stop on that note.